listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylight. This is the Skylight's Books podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Joseph Rodriguez to talk about his new book, LAPD 1994. We'll be in conversation with Ruben Martinez. But before I introduce him, I want to remind you that Skylight Books is now open with full capacity, and um, for our vaccinated customers, no mask requirement. So please come on by and say hi. We also are still offering um, online ordering on our website, www.skylightbooks.com. So check that out as well. Joseph Rodriguez was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. He began studying photography at the School of Visual Arts and went to receive an Associate of Applied Science degree at New York City Technical College. He worked in the graphic arts industry before deciding to pursue photography further. In 1985, he graduated with a photojournalism and documentary diploma from the International Center of Photography in New York. He went on to work for Black Star Photo Agency in print and online news organizations like Esquire, The Guardian, Mother Jones, National Geographic, New American Media, The New York Times Magazine, Newsweek, Stern, and The Washington Post. He has received awards and grants from the New York Foundation for the Arts, Artist Fellowships, USC Edinburgh Institute for Justice and Journalism, the Open Society Institute Justice Media Fellowship and Katrina Media Fellowship, National Endowment for the Arts, the Rockefeller Foundation, Mother Jones International Fund for Documentary Photography, and the Alicia Patterson Fellowship Fund for Investigative Journalism. Today, Joseph will be in conversation with Ruben Martinez, a, a native of Los Angeles and the son and grandson of immigrants from Mexico and El Salvador. Ruben is a writer, performer, and professor at Loyola Marymount University. Hello, Joseph and Ruben. Thank you so much for coming on today. Pleasure. Thank you. Great to be here, Lance. Thank you so much for having us. I'm so excited. Um, it's This book has been uh, just an amazing book to see at Skylight. And um, just, I mean, one, LAPD 94, that's, I was born in 94. So, I mean, it feels, I feel connected to the book in that way. Um, but yeah, you two, um, just, I'm excited for this conversation between you two. Thanks so much. Well, Thank you, it's my honor to, uh, be the one that gets to ask the questions, uh, here. Um, uh, just on a personal note, uh, Joseph, uh, and I go back a ways. We are very close friends. I consider him um, uh, a very generous mentor who I've learned a lot from about journalism and life, uh, the way the world 
works and the way the world could be. Um, he's a world-class photographer. That's the what I'll what I'll add. And you might, you know, uh, say no, no, don't say that. But I'm saying it. You're a world-class photographer and you're a class act all around. So um, Joseph, um, I'm on the West Coast in San Francisco. You're in New York City right now, but through the magic of Zoom, here we are together once again. And you invited me to write the introduction to your book, LAPD 1994, which I am holding in my hands right now here in San Francisco. And, um, and it, it took me back, of course, to the moment that this book is capturing, which is 1994, Los Angeles, Los Angeles Police Department. So why don't we set it up for the audience that might not have heard the specifics of how the origins of this project came about. How did 1990, LAPD 1994 start off? How did this project get going? Uh, well, put it into some context, you know, we're coming off of two years of very close investigative photography about gangs in Los Angeles. Um, I was, that was at the end, it was, closer to the end of 1994, around October, November. I was getting ready to move back east to New York City where I'm born and raised. Um, and I received a call from my, my agency, the Black Star Photo Agency, that, that uh, the New York Times Magazine had this assignment that they were interested in, in um, talking with me about. And um, I knew at that point that this was in a very um, rare opportunity to, to be able to take a closer look at any police department, yet alone the, the world's most famous police department, which I call, you know, the Hollywood sort of version of policing, because you guys in LA have made so many <laughs> police movies, you know, going way back. So I, 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 took, that, I took that assignment very seriously. And I stayed in Los Angeles for about another two months, uh, about six weeks. We, we drove around uh, with the writer. His name was Richard Rayner. And um, the idea behind LA, the LAPD was they wanted to make, they were shifting and trying to change the sort of political sort of nature of the department. And they brought in a new police chief I think he was from Philadelphia or from Pennsylvania, uh, Willie Williams, is that correct? And he wanted, uh, he reached out to, to the news outlet, to the New York Times, to see if we would go in and do a story about LAPD, a kinder, gentler cop. That is the original title of the New York Times magazine story that ran in January, 1995, a cover of magazine story, and there it was. Um, and, um, you know, I, I just basically followed the police departments, mostly in Rampart Division, then in the 7th Division, and then the Pacific Division, which is handling mostly Venice and that, that part of the city. Um, now, I've had experience already with East Side Stories doing ride-alongs. I, I did so with some of the sheriff's gang units. So I knew what I was walking into, but not 
really knowing what I was walking into. So, um, but I, I think that they didn't really mm, understand the way I work. I was the kind of photographer that was, you started at 4 a.m. I was there at 3.30 a.m. You started at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the evening. I was there at 5 o'clock in the evening and, and worked throughout the night. I mean, I remember, you know, it was like 4.30, 5 o'clock, end of shift. We go to Rampart Station. And, you know, this is where the hard work of policing becomes a real sort of big headache. It's called writing in the reports. And those guys back then, there was no computers. So everybody's typing on IBM typewriters, right? And that would go on for hours before these guys would even leave the station. So I thought that was interesting to really look at all the aspects I could, that they would allow me to see. Um, um, so I, I, I just was on it. I didn't sleep for six weeks, folks. I just did not sleep. And not just not just the anxiety of dealing with a department that you know i had seen work the other side of the street meaning against the gangs in los angeles was was a lot to sort of stay stay calm about oh yeah so uh a couple a couple of uh, points to pick up on here um uh, uh you gave the, the basic setup for 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 our audience of how this how this gig comes about the that it's a pr ploy Right, the LAPD is trying to remake its image two years after the Rodney King uh, civil disturbance uprising. Uh, we don't call it a riot. Uh, there was a big debate back then about what to call it. Right. Most people I know say uprising. Right. 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 Uh, and and in many ways, we're talking about uh, something very similar. I mean, for those of us who were around back then, our good friend Lance <laughs> said he was born that year. So he wasn't there, you know, watching it like we were. We were younger versions of ourselves, but we were adults on the job. And um, uh, for those of us who were there, when we saw George Floyd this last year, both the video and the uprising that followed it, boy, that shook up a lot of memories, brought up a lot of memories for people who had been around, just like 1992 brought back memories of people who were around for 1965 or for the Newark riots in 67 or for the riots at 68 after MLK was assassinated. I mean, this is a story that keeps on coming back and back and back, right? So um, there's that to say about it. I loved when you said that uh, a lot of Angelinos might not think this way, but uh, uh, about the LAPD, but I think you're right. You said the LAPD is the most famous department in the world. I believe so. <laughs> and I, it is. It's hot because of the Hollywood treatment, right? It was Dragnet, you know, it, it, it was, and it's James Elroy's novels. Uh, it was that great, uh, the great movie made uh, about James, James Elroy's novel, L.A. Confidential. Uh, L.A. Confidential. Uh, uh, movies in the 90s, 80s and 90s, like Colors and uh, uh, Boys in the Hood. And, uh, you know, the LAPD shows up in film big time because of Hollywood. So it is a department that has had its own PR machine going on. You know, Dragnet was like, you know, the height of the old school presentation of it. But by the time we get to the 80s and 90s with hip hop and, you know, uh, people taking video of, of Rodney King, that video that, that changed the world, that made possible 
you know, what happened just last summer, things really start to change. And the last thing I'll say, and, I'll, and I'll, this is where my question comes from, is that the LAPD really did not know what they were getting when you came on the assignment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, 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 you told us how you work. Mm -hmm. And I'll just say the, the, the greatest thing that I learned from you about documentary uh, photography and journalism in general is how close mm -hmm. you need to be to get the subject to really move on the page visually or textually. Can you well, tell us a little bit, a little bit more about the way you work and how you well, get close I, to your subjects? Well, I grew up with, with what, what our New York newspapers back then would call muscle journalism. And I think you know who the great writers were um, that we read a lot of and sort of studied as I was growing up. Um, and, you know, in terms of photography, well, you know, I'm going way back to like Ouija, for example. So Ouija was that New York photographer who would go out and cover the crime beat for the Daily News, the New York Post, the Herald Tribune, and had a police radio, and he would always be the, the Johnny on the spot right there. I mean, he's very famous for a lot of his, his pictures that were used um, in a lot of uh, films as well. So, you know, coming out of that tradition, you can't come home without the pictures. <laughs> it's like you can't come home without the story, you know. And I, and, and I, and I think like Pete Hamill, a very famous writer and editor, w would always school us, you know, especially us younger sort of wannabe journalists or younger wannabe photojournalists, you know, if you, if you weren't there then, and you didn't have the pictures, then, you know, you'll goodbye. So, you know, there I was, and I knew what was in front of me and this was nothing to laugh about. So every single moment that I was able to arrive on a crime scene, you know, for example, I give you one example. There was, there was a, a press officer who was, taking me on a tour of uh, MacArthur Park. And it was right about, right before the sunset. So it was about 4.35 o'clock in the afternoon. He goes, look how beautiful the park is. We cleaned it up and it's fantastic. And, you know, you know, a lot of our Rasa were playing football and a lot of our kids were playing around and there was some picnicking going on. It was really a very serene, beautiful scene. And then the sun goes down and about a half an hour later, 45 minutes later, you know, we start getting a call. And then there's, there's a robbery taking place while the police, while I'm in, the, in, in this car with, with this um, uh, police person. And someone tried to rob this man. He pulled out his knife and tried to, to protect himself. The other man had a gun and shot him with a 38 snub nose and the pictures in the book, you know, and it was part of the evidence. And there I was, boom. And so here, here we went from this, it was almost like a movie in a way. It's like, oh, look how great everything is. And then the split frame second, you know, we have a dead man on the street. And then the seconds the fire department comes and they're trying to save his life, but they couldn't save his life. Then we're looking for the evidence and you could see the, you know, the red little squares go around where the bullets were dropped and then they, there was there was the 38 laying in the grass so you know, yeah so it was it was a scene like that that um i felt that was necessary to 
So, and, and these are the kind of pictures I see every day in my own city right here. Every day I see people being shot and hurt. And, and so, you know, that was, that was just one episode, one, one sort of, and, and, you know, we're going, I mean, it's pretty frenetic. I mean, this is going on like, okay, that was one call. Okay. Boom. There's another domestic violence call. And next thing you know, we're in a, we're in a Pico union and there's, there is a man who uh, who beat the heck out of his wife. One of the most difficult pictures I've ever taken in my entire career, uh, uh, because this woman was like my mother, right? And this man decided not. She she want, She was holding on to the money to, for the food for the kids, and he wanted the money so he can go drink. And it was twenty dollars we're talking about here, folks. And he just beat her to a pulp with a point where that. The neighbors called 911. We arrive on the scene. Even the police, the, the two, two, two cops that I was driving with, uh, Officer Donia and, and, and his partner, we had to go out for a drink after that call. I mean, it was brutal. So that's when I started to understand that the, the number one call that, that this police department would get with domestic violence was like, I thought it was more gun violence, to, really. But um, so, so I, I just I just learned a lot, you know, and and understood the, the severity and the importance of of this access, right? I wasn't there to make people look bad or try. I didn't have an agenda. Although I have to tell the audience that you know I know what it's like to be in a police car when I was seventeen with my handcuffs behind me because I got arrested as a juvenile and uh, you know went to Rikers Island. So I knew what that side of of you know, uh, criminal justice can be like, but I, I, you know, as a photojournalist, you know, you can't have an agenda, folks. I mean, you just, you know, you're working for the New York Times, you know, we have five lawyers on, on staff to make sure that everything that we're doing is accurate and truthful. So um, that's why I was always a big stickler with my friend Ruben about captions. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Okay. So uh, so no, you're, the original ride along that this book comes out of, uh, you, of course, you didn't have an agenda because you're, you're shooting something on assignment and right. the assignment, you know, is with a writer and, you know, so that's taking its own course, right? right. But you just talked about who you are and mm. your past and your experience as a juvenile uh, in the justice system, the criminal justice system. Uh, and I want to let the audience know, you, uh, Lance, in his introduction of you, uh, talked a bit about your uh, earlier work. And let's just underscore the fact that you have been telling, in some ways, your story through the pain and violence of others over Without and over it. again. Without what you doubt. lived, what you lived as a young person. You know, in your teen years and in your 20s, your struggles, um, that is reflected in the several books that you have. Uh, you and I, uh, I first met you actually uh, just a couple of years before uh, you did this ride along, right after the, the LA riots. And um, you produced a book called East Side Stories uh, about gang life in East Los Angeles. And, and, I really got the sense uh, when I looked carefully at those photographs and I, and I got to know you that you connected with these homeboys and homegirls 
in Boyle Heights, largely. That's where the book is largely set. Mm-hmm. Um, because even though it was New York and even though it was the 1950s and 60s, and here you're shooting as an adult, you know, young kids on the West Coast in Boyle Heights in the, uh, uh, in the 90s, um, there was something you were connecting with very deeply on a very personal level. Mm-hmm. Um, and that shows up in all your work. That's, that's, I think, the thread that connects your first book of photography, Spanish Harlem, and goes all the way through to LAPD 1994. You've been looking at kids and justice or injustice, as the case may be, your entire career. I don't know how that sits with well, I think it's important well, you see for yourself. I think, that's the way I see it. No, no, 100%. I mean, it, the journey was very hard as a juvenile, and you, um, my family history, you know, wasn't easy either. You know, I had a stepfather who was a, a drug addict, and, you know, the domestic violence and the, and the, the, all, all of that stuff that I had to sort of constantly uh, live with. And, you know, so trying to get rid of all that pain and suffering, what does a young person do? Try to blank it out through sex, maybe, through money, maybe, through drugs, maybe, through alcohol. So I got hooked on, on heroin and, and uh, that became a huge battle for me to sort of change. And, and photography was that beautiful thing that happened in the crossroads of my life where there was one um, African-American photojournalist who was teaching a workshop in Brooklyn in Bed-Stuy. And I, I took this class and it, and it just opened up my, just, just my head. I wasn't serious about photography. It was just a, you know, an amateur, I was an amateur and I enjoyed taking pictures of my family and my neighborhood. And, and so it, it created a, a, some kind of an anchor for me to, to understand that there's another way, Joe, there is another path for you. There's something else you can do here. And, you know, I had to fight a, that addiction. I was on methadone. I had to try to get off of that. And then, you know, it was a time of affirmative action, you know, which, you know, there was opportunity out here. It was less to go to college. And, so I took those opportunities very seriously and slowly got to a better place. But the baggage or the history of who Joe was back then has always been in my work. And, you know, when I photographed Spanish Harlem, one of the proudest projects of my sort of career, um, because it's my communities, it's Puerto Rican and African-American community in Spanish Harlem. And, you know, I spent five years working on the project. Um, um, simply because I, I learned very early on, if we're going to tell our own story, we're going to need time to do that story. And I learned a lot from you, Ruben, as well, because you, you've been very committed to your work in El Salvador and you committed to your work with the Migrant Trail, which, you know, we've worked on closely for some 10 years. However, what I think the photography, especially in Los Angeles, and to get there, this is very important. I hope the audience doesn't mind. We just stretch this out a little bit. I had just come off of a very important story for National Geographic called Growing Up in East Harlem. And it was a cover story and it was the proudest day of my life. I go back to to Spanish Harlem and there it was in the public, in the library. And the two little Boricua kids are going like, wow, look, this is our neighborhood. And that was the light bulb that kind of 
opened me up in my brain and look who it is. It's Joseph Rodriguez. He's got a name like mine. And us Boricuas never really got that, that kind of sort of footprint out there. And so then I, I was called back to do another assignment for National Geographic. He's got won awards, but, but before that they fired the editor. And I was like, well, why'd you fire the editor? Well, I was trying to do stories that would bring a younger audience in like Age in Uganda and the Berlin Wall, the Exxon oil spill. Uh-oh, National Geographic, guess who gets most of the money? Oh, gets a lot of money from Exxon, National Geographic. So they fired him, I come in, they're gonna give me a story to do in Mauritius, which I, I you know, I did a good job on, I ran another story a couple of years later, but they did this in-house survey and they said, Several of the editors thought they should not be doing stories about poor communities in America. And I just flipped me inside internally. Of course, I had to sit there and listen to this. But and as I left the museum, I left the, the National Geographic. I went to the Smithsonian Museum and I, want, I had an appointment with the uh, prints and photographs curator, the director of prints and photographs, I'm sorry. And I said, gee, you know, I don't see any Puerto Rican. I don't see in your archive anything that's related to New York Puerto Rican people who are part of America, right? Yeah, yeah. But I did see a Chicano art exhibition, which I thought was awesome. But that was the only representation in terms of Latinos in the public space. And I already knew in 1986, seven, that the growth of Latinos in the United States of America was on the rise, folks. And I was talking to curators. I was talking to the editors at huge publications and magazines about the growth of who we are. And, you know, we're a group of people. We're Mexican and Salvadorian and Dominican. And, you know, and there was this wasn't even connecting in their heads. So. After I got that, that uh, notice from them uh, or that conversation about they should not be doing stories about poverty, look what National Geographic is right now. Last year, they just went to a whole big conversation about their colonialist prism on the world as they have documented it prior to these stories that they've done. Yeah. So, so this is what happened, folks. Yeah. No, wait, wait, this no. is important. Wait, 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 I just got to finish this one thing. I had a career almost with National Geographic. I did never do another story for them again. After that is what I did. I came to Los Angeles. So that, not just because of the music and the connections of the street and what NWA and every, Dre and everybody was saying on a daily basis, you know, or Kid Frost or a lot of Chicano rappers, it was more about, hey, uh, you know, maybe we should really take a, a really deeper look. And that's when you and I met. That, that's, that's, that's a great uh, uh, way to capture, you know, National Geographic, I mean, to this day, when, when I, the, you know, I have two, two things in my mind when I hear National Geographic. One is when I was a kid, you know, my father would uh, go to garage sales a lot. That's a very big LA thing, as you know. Um, garage sales, and, you know, and there'd always be like na old National Geographic's lying around from the 50s and 60s or whatever, you know. And 
the photography, of course, when you're a kid, you look at that stuff. Whoa, you, you look at, you know, around the world. I remember seeing the, the volcano in Michoacan in 1948 erupting or something like that. So a kid's imagination, you know, before you get your critical, you know, faculties, you know, later on, you know, is, is, is turned on by these images, right? Uh, we gravitate towards them. Mm. But as an adult, it's a whole, it was a whole nother experience. Yeah. How, how was National Geographic gazing upon the world? And you just captured right there, the, colo the colonialist lens. And it's, it's important to, just, to, just to emphasize the last part of your story, the payoff of your story. You walk away from National Geographic, you come to the West Coast, and you're on your own. You're exactly. doing East Side Story. This book that became East Side Stories, which is right around the time you're producing LAPD 1994, just a couple of years earlier, mm. you're doing this on your own. Mm. The hell in National Geographic, the hell with the institutions, the hell with you know the, the establishment. Mm. And I'm going to represent things the way I see them. I'm going to edit this. You're editing the story now. Now you don't even have an editor. You're your own editor. To take, to take the power at that, at back then, at that time, that was a radical pioneering act, my brother. Well, you remember Pedro Mayer saying that uh, Pedro Mayer, the great Pedro Mayer, photographer from Mexico, uh, from Mexico, Mexico City, Mexico City yeah. right? Who we really honor and respect, Mr. Zone Zero. He was the one who was telling me, well, you can't publish these pictures. But, and I had, I had a lot of reservations about publishing these pictures, just like I had a lot of reservations about publishing LAPD 1994. I don't want to get too much off the, LAPD 1994 yep. track, but, um, yep. you know, I felt, you know, there were parents, Ruben, Lance, that were just, they were crying to me, man. I mean, what do you do with that kind of responsibility? You, you are the responsible one. I remember the Thomas Regalado III, their family sitting down in the kitchen with them the day before their before his funeral, and we're we're having a little novena together. We're praying, and she said, we're "You have to tell you, the story." Yes, yeah, yeah, so right, and and th that is a the young child. That exactly, was, two and a half year old, and two and a half year old, two and a half year old, yes. killed in a drive by in a in a coffin. But you know that responsibility, I didn't necessarily want Ruben. But, you know, when right. it was handed to me, I could see that all I was hearing from a lot of folks was, you're not like LAP, you're not like Los Angeles Times, you don't drop in and just leave. I said, no, I don't drop in and leave because, you know, that's just the way I work. I'm just like a turtle. I like to work slow and like to get to know people. I want to, you know, I want to taste your tacos. <laughs> I want to be with you. I want to, I want to be there. So when I was working with LAPD, that's all, a totally different experience. It's really on spot really sort of on-spot journalism. Things are happening in seconds by the minutes. But because we had this experience already within, this, within the Latino community in Spanish Harlem, within the communities of Los Angeles, you know, um, and, and um, you know, the, the, it was e pretty easy to see, you know. I mean, it's just about luck and the right moments, but, you know, yeah. Um, so let, uh, you yes. got to remember that there were a lot of guns on the streets yes. in 94 let, let, ATF was brought in with LAPD to try to do something to take, take some of those guns off yes. the streets. And we're doing that right now. It's the same thing here in New York. Jesus. Right. Right. And, uh, so let's focus on LAPD. Uh, right. remember we're talking about 1984. Uh, right. uh, I've got the book open here before me, you know, looking at the pictures again. 
I mean, these are these are this is a radical immersion in violence and pain. It, it's it's kind of it's 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 difficult to hold, and yet it's so important. The, you struggle. You said you were struggling in East Side Stories with presenting certain images. You and I had conversations about certain images here, very difficult images. Do you reveal it or do you not? Right? What goes into the decision to pull back? What is too much in terms of violence and suffering? There is there too much? There, there, there probably is a line, right, that you have to draw for yourself and your audience. I yes. can't go. You can you know mm -hmm. reveal just enough but allow some space for i mean because ultimately for humanity for for, for humanity for to say okay this is a city in pain mm -hmm. but it's also a city that's finding itself that's revealing itself that is undergoing uh, a transformation it's not like you know uh, uh, L.A. Has, has 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 taken care of all of its problems. We know that the LAPD keeps on making mistakes over and over and over. Kerry McWilliams, the great Southern California historian, in nineteen in the nineteen forties, in a book called North from Mexico, said the LAPD can always be counted upon to repeat its mistakes over and over and over. It just doesn't learn the lesson, and maybe it doesn't learn the lesson because it doesn't want to. Maybe because it's a it's a power, it's it's keeping a certain power structure in place, right? Now that power structure was shaken to its foundations last year with George Floyd, just like you know police departments across the country and in some cases around the world. But what you're capturing here is the beginning of kind of like the reckoning with that. Well, so back to that question, what do, what do you you know how far can you go in revealing? pain and suffering and what's the line that's that's too far yeah well i already been some somewhat of a war photographer prior to photograph i was there i was in southeast turkey for the first gulf war um you know i i covered war violence in southern africa in mozambique you know um i i photographed in in Romania during after Ceausescu with all of the terrible orphanages that were there so you know pain and suffering was something that you know most war photographers were supposed to do right to to share to the public I, I strongly believe for example with the Vietnam War there was still photographs to kind of changed the conversation and made us look their Kent State image or the Malai, you know, with the young girl walking, running down the street. I mean, you know, we can shy away from all of that and close our eyes in today's Instagram world and say, oh my God, we don't want to see that. It's too pain and suffering. But what happens, and I've seen this in real time, when you're living in a dictatorship, and we almost had one, folks, I don't want to even go there, whose name, whatever, but we almost got there you know, where when you're in a dictatorship, you know, the truth is, is not to be shared, you know, so I think we're in a, as a, as a democratic society, sometimes we have to look at the world, you know, not too much of it, obviously, the line is drawn right here. I am not a photojournalist working in Tijuana. Now, if you're a photojournalist working in Tijuana, right, in the last 20 years, you're going to, most likely be photographing 
some more gruesome stuff that we did with LAPD. There's no doubt. I mean, it's been publicized. There was a photographer who was pretty famous to work for Aperture, who did a book with Aperture. And a lot of his front page stories were, were the, these horrific images. You know, there's only so much a human being can take. But I don't think, I mean, and I truly believe that, that right now we're living in the, in the age of interruption. There's just too much too too many problems coming down on the world however when i come down to a very simplistic way of looking at this these are salvadoreños these are mexicanos these are boricuas these are dominicans these these are the families that suffer the, a lot african-american families i mean we don't even i mean look at it now i mean yeah we can show the bullet and the the person that's hurt but i mean there's so much behind all of that, right? So, so yes, I think the book is for the public good. I mean, it's not necessarily a good thing to look at, but I think as we pay our taxes for public folks that work for us, you know, I think it's only fair that we show what their work is, so. Yes. Well, they're, they're tough decisions to, to make. They're, they're deeply ethical decisions. And, you know, I've got, uh, Im, you know, not every image in the book is, is, is pain and suffering. There's, there's, uh, there's lighter moments, there are little moments of calm, there's little moments of tenderness. Uh, there's, uh, I've got, a, I've got a, a, a image here, a forlorn kid that's a, uh, under uh, under arrest about to be under arrest and you can just feel for him you know it's like your your images cry out ultimately i think probably the, the most their real power comes because they're asking us to empathize well i think they're asking the, us I, to feel what the people in the photographs are experiencing mm -hmm. and in some cases in this and this goes kind of contrary to to where, where a lot of the country has been the last year in some cases you're asking to actually empathize a bit with the with the police. Well, there's in, one in a couple in some image, cases. There's one image from this Nicaraguan uh, officer, Officer Doña, and there's a new baby. A new baby was just born. You know, he's he's. You know, we talk about this word community policing, but I, I saw community policing in real time, and it wasn't forced. It wasn't like. Uh, with, with, with certain LAPD officers, for sure. I mean, Donya is someone who works Pico Union and worked it for a long time, knows a lot of families, knows a lot of people. And we're driving down the street and the kids stop and, it, and there's a whole bunch of them come to the car and they're boys, right? They could be gang members, but they're not, right? And, he, and he's talking to them and he goes, and one of the kids goes, did you see my new brother? And so he brings the little baby to him, right? It was almost like a politician's, <laughs> moment of a press picture where you know holding a baby but i could see the tenderness that's there as this officer is holding this baby you know um and you know there's another image of a domestic violence scene where there's a, a white officer who arrives and he's been there before with this woman and he's got a restraining order on the trunk of the car it's at night and he's standing there he's looking away and she's perplexed about whether or not she should sign that piece of paper. Well, that guy was a mess. I mean, he was like, God, I, I don't want to do this again. So, you know, I got to understand. And, 
if you did a job, if I did a job like that every day, ay, ay, ay. I don't even know. Well, yeah. We could and, do that, and that raises the whole, the whole issue of, you know, what, what police are, are asked to do. They're mm -hmm. asked to, to deal with, with public health issues like mm -hmm. addiction. They're asked to deal with violence. They're asked to deal yeah. with self-harm. They're asked to deal yeah. with, and, 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 and the strongest parts of, uh, of the activism over the last year have pointed out this, that's not, that's not public safety. No, it's not. That, that's a recipe know. for a public safety disaster. Mm -hmm. You know, mental health issues and, and drug abuse and, and domestic violence. How can you have one person deal with all those social ills? And yeah. that's what the police have been put into. These yeah. images, Joseph, uh, reveal a city to itself at a critical moment of transformation. They're very powerful. And um, thanks so much for uh, talking well, I, about, about your work. Well, thank you. I just hope it was part of Los Angeles history because that's that's what I that's why I produce work like this for our, for our cultures and for for us to understand and and hopefully get to a better place. So I thank you guys very much. Right on. Thank you both. Thank you both for what a I mean, just a great conversation. I am so I don't know. I feel honored to be like listening in this way. Um, and I know our listeners will feel the same way too. So thank you both again. And I just want, before you go, to ask you both um, if you have anything to say to the independent bookstore community. Well, I, you know, I'll let Ruben end on, but you know, where I stand, I, I work with Powerhouse Books. Powerhouse Books, even though it's an established photographic book publisher, is really run on this independent bookstore. We have we have a couple of our bookstores here, powerhouse bookstores, and they're small, just like Skylight. And I think that that independent books bookstores is so important for the, especially for our local communities. You know, mm -hmm. that we can go back and and pick up a title and then maybe come back and share the title and and you know give it out and 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 I think it's really really important. So. You know, I, I know this is not a, a fundraiser, but I would hope that the, the, the folks that are that are listening to continue to support it, Skylight, for sure, and other independent sure. bookstores. Yeah, uh, you know, when you talk about independent bookstores, I mean, what, uh, I lived in Venice uh, Beach when uh, I was very young uh, adult and um, small world books. Mm -hmm. uh, the most amazing poetry section right there on the boardwalk. Wow. Uh, wow. Beautiful, beautiful, stunning poetry section that just changed my life, you know. Uh, and, and, and it was around the time that there was a lot, I'm talking about at a time when there was a lot of independent books and bookstores in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. but like Papa, but people go back as far as I do, Papa Bach and many others. Um, but, you know, they're, they're such an integral part of the geography of any great city. When you go to New York, you got to go to the Strand. Right. You know, when you go to LA, you got to, of course, you got to, you, you got to visit the independent booksellers like you guys, you know, Skylight, who could, you know, I go back, you know how far back I go with Skylight? I go back to Chatterton's. Wow. Chatterton's, I, wow. because I worked across the street at another independent bookseller, yeah. which is just across the street called the uh, German New and Used International Bookstore, which is wow. all a bunch of used books and yeah. all deans and, you know, I mean, there was books, Romans is still around, thank God. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were so many more. You yeah. guys have survived. Without you guys, I mean, 
you guys really give the personality, you know, to uh, to to the city, the geography, of the city, and to to literature and and and, and books in general. So, it's uh, I can't imagine a world without indie indie booksellers. Thank you. Onward. No, thank you both. That was, I mean, what a what a little brief history on like the bookstores out here too. I mean, thank you. That's thank you for that as well. <laughs> but no, thank you both again. This has been just so great to hear you two speak on this um thank you so much no maybe problem. we'll do it again sometime a couple whenever you want just let me know um and to our listeners you can see right now lapd 1994 on display in our store and just even if like come in and look at it and i promise you you'll be amazed by the amazing fo photos you'll see in it and the illuminating photos i'll say easy in it so yeah come on by and check it out and grab yourself a copy um but thank you to all my listeners for coming back again come visit us in store um we're fully open so yeah come on by and have a great rest of your day Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.